Hey, Don. Hello, Zach. This week, we have an amazing guest that is coming on to talk about nuclear power. His name is Dwayne Damore. He works for Chesapeake Nuclear, and he's a health physicist. We brought him in to talk about the concept of nuclear power and why hasn't nuclear power exactly come of age or become more accepted and popular across the earth? And here's the best paragraph I read. To fully understand progress, we must contrast it with non-progress. Of particular interest are the technologies that have failed to live up to the promise they seem to have decades ago. And few technologies have failed more to live up to greater promise than nuclear power. In the 1950s, nuclear was the energy of the future. Two generations later, it provides only about 10% of world electricity, and reactor design hasn't fundamentally changed in decades. Even advanced reactor designs are based on concepts first tested in the 1960s. And Don, this blog post that we read was basically somebody trying to summarize another book, and the book was called Why Nuclear Power Has Been a Flop. And once again, we've brought in Mr. Demore here to kind of help us understand some of the terms of nuclear energy to also give us hopefully some perspective about why nuclear energy has kind of stagnated in our society. And therefore, Don, I'll open it up with you. What did you think about the article? I thought the article was fascinating because what was seen as the number one fear of environmentalists for years and years was nuclear energy and radiation and its effects on the environment. And as climate change has come to the forefront, nuclear energy has gone from the villain to really the solution but it's a solution nobody wants. Nobody has any interest in building more power plants because it's gotten so expensive. And I was intrigued in the article and watching how costs had risen. My question initially, and the reason I reached out to my former roommate and smartest person I know, Dwayne, was what happened in 1970 and can it be undone? Because prices for per watt hour were falling to making nuclear power plants in 1970. And since then, it's just risen and risen. And now it's far more expensive than other alternatives. Dwayne, you obviously have an extensive amount of experience in nuclear energy. Could you give us any perspective as to maybe what's happened historically in the industry? Why does it seem like nuclear power is always sort of put off to the side as an option, but one that we don't really use that much? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Fundamentally, it can be looked at as a public relations issue. People do not want nuclear power around. So there, there's lots of reasons people wouldn't want, don't want nuclear power, largely going back to a, to a fear of radiation, I guess. And so it does not have necessarily the broad scale community support that it probably deserves. Interestingly with that, I mean, that to me is, I think, one of the fundamental reasons is because people are, you know, there's anti-nuclear people all over. A lot of other industries don't have that. But one of the fundamental truths of nuclear power is, and having worked at many plants around the country, the people who live closest to the nuclear power plants are very pro-nuclear. It's the people who live a little bit further away who are anti-nuclear. So although nobody wants it in their backyard, the people who have it right in their backyard are generally supportive. Why is that? That seems almost counterintuitive. Why would you say people that are living closest are okay with it? Fundamentally, if you live very close to a nuclear power plant, you've got a nuclear power plant in your town, in your county, you have a massive, massive source of tax money. The power plants pay huge tax bills, sometimes effectively funding towns and counties almost by themselves. So those communities result with good schools, good roads, all the things that the government provides, and good jobs. And the people in that community realize those benefits And so whatever perceived risks they have 
of having that nuclear plant, they determine in themselves that it's worth it because they realize those benefits. When you talk about radiation, and that obviously seems to be the fear that's in the back of everybody's mind. And of course, people think about Chernobyl, or maybe they watched the HBO show a couple summers ago and Three Mile Island, of course, and then Fukushima seemed to be the three major, like most yep, popular. About those three. <laughs> yeah. I mean, those are the things that people always talk about. At the end of the day, can you plainly just say that the data does not support people's fears about radiation in their lives? Or is there any truth to kind of what people are thinking in the back of their minds? There is some truth to it. The issue is, again, it's all, to me, it's a, an issue with risk perception. There is truth to the fact that radiation can cause harm. There is truth to the fact that events like Chernobyl were significant events that released tons and tons of radiation. So those are both, you know, things to be fearful of in a way, but it's also an, a subject of, of magnitude. The amount of radiation you need to be exposed to to cause harm is generally much, much higher than people think. Also, and, and, and in general, people also are not aware of or don't understand that you're swimming in radiation right now. And typically, I kind of chuckle a lot of times when you, when you see the you know, see the arguments about nuclear power and how much radiation might get exposed to a certain person at a certain location is generally very small compared to what they get every day anyways, without that plant being there or without that nuclear event. So that's just, a, I think that's just a perception and an education of the, of the community issue. You said that your specific position title is a health physicist. And does that mean that you focus on how much radiation people are being exposed to in either nuclear power plants or outside of a nuclear power plant? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm a health physicist. It's a it's kind of a nebulous term. People don't, you know, sort of by design, people don't know exactly what it what it means. But yeah, so I'm involved in the in, in the study and the protection of radiation. So it can take the form of, you know, from a nuclear power plant standpoint, you know, in some ways the 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 design aspects and the operational aspects of the plant and how to ensure that both workers and members of the public are exposed to less radiation. And then also can can feed into, okay, well now someone, what are the potentially what are the effects of being exposed to radiation and how do we how do we monitor and track that? One of the things that I found kind of interesting about this article, and I didn't know this, is as you said, we're swimming in radiation already before you even add in nuclear power plants. I had no idea that a banana contained radiation. And I would, you know, I've heard rumors that things like cell phones, electronic devices, are those things also emitting lots of radiation around us? Yeah, that they are, but it's a different type of radiation. So there's a one, uh, there's, well, there, well, there's a few different types, there's many different types of radiation, but one fundamental difference is ionizing versus non-ionizing. And all that has, means is, does it have enough energy to cause an electron to be released from an atom? So the cell phone towers, microwaves, that kind of thing, that's non-ionizing radiation. So that's just a fundamental different mechanism of how that radiation might interact with you if you get exposed to it compared to alpha, beta, gamma x-rays, you know, the traditional nuclear radiation that is considered ionizing. I focus on ionizing radiation. And is one more harmful than the other? I guess in general, you'd say ionizing is more harmful, but it's just, just kind of different. In talking with Dwayne, it seems that there's just a lack of clarity about what small levels of radiation do in the long run. The article goes into talking about how people are affected by it and the lack of effect on some people who were, the one subject they talked about was injected with plutonium and lived for a long, long time and died not from cancer or anything else. And that 
this fear seems irrational. Right. Yeah, that, that's, that's kind of the, the point is in, in general, we have an irrational fear. We don't understand how much radiation we're exposed to all the time. We think about the, the Chernobyl events and, and all the terrible images that could come up from a nuclear power plant, but without really understanding, well, what are the actual real risks here? How have people really been negatively affected by their, their exposure to radiation, especially from nuclear power plants? I think um, that's the big thing is the understanding versus not understanding in that right. climate change. It's hard for people to see the direct results of increased carbon emissions, which leads to worse storms and flooding and so forth. And potentially in the future, crop changes and climate changes. But yet the radiation thing, they think they can draw a straight line and that they're in peril. Well, one of the things I had written down was, does the industry need a better advertising campaign or... <laughs> a, a better way to convince the public that this is safer than you think, or that, Hey, there's already all of this radiation going on just so that people can understand it. Cause again, the first thing I was thinking when I saw this article was, yeah, those three major disasters that at least got a lot of media uh, attention. And then you just sort of think, okay, the radiation exposure, I guess nuclear is just, it's clean, but it doesn't seem safe for humans. And yet, clearly, as you're saying, look, like radiation's all around us. I had no idea. Has the industry tried to make people more aware? Yeah, they've, they've done some things to, to try. And I, I don't know. I mean, and they have the different uh, lobbyist groups, but, you know, that's, you know, the lobby groups. And so it, it, it just, I, I don't know exactly why it hasn't been successful, but that has been a, a topic amongst nuclear power operators for, for years about how to, how to convince the public or educate the public, I guess, about here's the facts, here's what's actually happening. I, I think about like ExxonMobil and whenever you're watching football, they always show their little green algae in a bathtub. Right. And, <laughs> uh, but, but yet I'm amazed because I'll go to holiday gatherings and people, oh, how about Exxon? It looks like they're really changing their tune. And we all know that that algae in a bathtub is just, you know, <laughs> <Algae in> the <laughs> lipstick on a pig. It's an oil company. Where's, right. where's the nuclear power um, algae in a bathtub ad, I guess? Yeah, no, that, yeah, that is true. There's, there's, there's not many ads. I don't know if that gets into, uh, into, because there's not a direct, you know, one fundamental difference, you know, maybe between, you know, you can go to, well, I guess you can go to, you know, Exxon or you can go to the Exxon station to buy gas for your car. You don't necessarily go anywhere to buy, buy or not buy nuclear power, right? You know, you get it from, a, um, from an electric company and that electric company gets the electricity from whatever generation mix they have. Some places you might have a choice of what electric company you use, but most places you don't, right? You just get, you know, I get my DTE bill. I'm paying DTE, whether they're giving me nuclear power or, or wind power or whatever. That's a good point. You don't exactly ask DTE where the, where the power is coming from or how they made it. You just get the power. Right. Is there a way to make people understand, I guess, this radiation that's already out there versus radiation from a nuclear power plant in terms of just trying to get them to understand, look, the exposure you're going to get from a plant is maybe even less sometimes than what you're already receiving in the world. Is there an example or an analogy that you could give that sort of helps people like understand it better? The, the information I give or the terms of that, or what I would say is, you know, I try not to default too much into numbers and units or whatever. But in terms of the, the real world exposures, I mean, in the US, we deal with millirem. That's a, uh, a unit of radiation exposure. It means a lot, a lot of things. I'm trying to just cut to the chase and call it a millirem. And you can say on average, you, me, you know, Don, Zach, Dwayne, 
we all get uh, one milliram a day. And that's a roughly good estimate. So, you know, that's 300, 365 milliram a year you get just from natural sources. Living near a uh, nuclear power plant, you know, the typical numbers they have is you would get, if you live very near a nuclear power plant, you might get one to two milliram a year more. So uh, instead of, you know, 300 milliram, you might get 301. Uh, so that's kind of the magnitude of what the effect of living near a nuclear power plant is. So it's I not work, like it's a multiplier. It's just add no. one. Right. Yeah. And you already got, you know, add one or add, you know, whatever point, you know, a third of a percent, you know, to give you a perspective. I mean, I, I worked at nuclear power plants for about 10 or 12 years, you know, where we're closely monitored for radiation. The most exposure I ever got, this is working in a plant. So a lot more than any member of the public anywhere near the most exposure I ever got in a given year was maybe 100 or 150 millirem. Uh, and most years was much less than that. But so yeah, so I got, you know, working at the nuclear power plant for a year, I got half of my natural exposure on top of what I get. Has science figured out a number that you don't want to go above on a, on a yearly basis? Or is that a debatable number? That is that that's the massive debate. And that's what comes down to a lot with it's in that article. And it gets into what's called this, this thing about linear no threshold. So what that is, is we can see at very high doses of radiation, negative effects. You know, if, if you get, you know, obviously, you know, the, the people that unfortunately have died from radiation, you know, the few that did in Chernobyl, whatever, they got these massive amounts of radiation or other people that had these high exposure events or jobs or, or, or whatever in, in history, they can identify, oh, look, cancer rates are going up. But the problem is that's typically done at the order of, tens to hundreds of REMs. What I was just talking about were millirems, one thousandths of those. At the low, much, much lower levels, it becomes much more difficult to identify any actual radiation effects. Um, the reason why is because what happens if you get exposed to radiation? Well, typically it'll be uh, a cancer, you know, leukemia, lung cancer, whatever. Well, you get leukemia and lung cancer and all sorts of other cancers just naturally anyways. So you have to tying, you have to identify what is this increase in cancer incidence and relate that back to radiation doses. At the doses we talk about here, you know, for being by nuclear power plant, they have, have not and cannot identify any increase in cancer rates, for instance. And this is talking about the general, the, everything's going well at the nuclear reactor and the extra background radiation you have. But mm -hmm. I think the fear that people have and the thing that's driving people away from nuclear is the fear of a major event. And yep. we've brought up F Fukushima a couple times, but mm -hmm. nobody died from radiation poisoning in Fukushima. But yet the people that were evacuated, the implicit cost is doubled suicide rates for all the people that left and I read an article in the New Yorker about this family and they were forced off their generations, old families out land. And then they got to go back for one day. And the wife tragically died by suicide because she was so upset that she had to leave. And I don't think that people understand the limits of the danger, which is so small. Exactly. Exactly. That, that turns into this, this big issue. And that was part of, part of the, in my opinion, the United States poor response to Fukushima in Japan, but there's a whole, you know, it's a whole balancing act to play of when you have that big event in Fukushima, when and how do you evacuate? Everyone thinks, oh, well, we're having Fukushima or we're having this event, it's releasing this radiation, we got to run away because radiation is bad. And you think that's the safe thing to do. Well, maybe it is 
for you and me, if we're thinking that we're able-bodied, we have a place to go, we're going to get in our car and just drive down the road and get farther away from this release of radioactive material. But that's not everybody. There's lots of people that are, uh, you know, far less mobile than we are, or they're in the hospital and, you know, all of a sudden, you know, <laughs> moving them from their hospital bed, that's not exactly an easy thing to do. So in real life, like you talked about, that's a real example from Fukushima. During the evacuation, you know, there's different numbers floating out there, but the, the estimate is over a thousand people died during the Fukushima evacuation. I can say with pretty certainty that most of that, uh, I mean, and, and I guess I don't know how to, want to say anything in, in too black and white, but I would think far, far fewer would be on the uh, recorded deaths from radiation if they had not evacuated. And that seems to be the big main idea of this whole blog post is right. the data from nuclear power basically just suggests this power is clean. It's, it's much safer than people want to believe. But ultimately, people's behavior, like with Fukushima, shows that people still have a very irrational fear of nuclear power. I was just sort of writing down things like, I remember a while ago, I read a book where they were just talking about shark attacks. People have an irrational fear at shark mm -hmm. attacks. People like, you know, it's safe to go back to the beaches because once a year you see this horrific person who maybe dies of a shark attack and then everybody believes that the sharks are just out there. This just kind of seem to sort of fit in there of people, again, they think of the absolute worst thing. Or I was wondering too, how much do people get, you know, they maybe they've seen some of the grainy images of Hiroshima or Nagasaki and the destruction of a nuclear bomb, but then all they can think of when they think of a nuclear power plant and a possible calamity is just sort of what a nuclear bomb looks like. They just can't separate the two images and therefore they just sort of raise their flag as it's all bad. I was curious if you could comment, what is the absolute worst case scenario if you did have an accident at a nuclear power plant? Like in terms of shutoff valves or safety measures, is there a way that Fukushima never could have leaked out and gotten really bad? Or is there always a potential possibility that it could get bad. I'm not going to say it can ever get bad. And, you know, because obviously, you know, we got examples that show that it can. And uh, Fukushima is pretty close to as bad as it can get. Fundamental difference between a nuclear bomb and a nuclear power plant is, is the, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the rate of the energy release. You know, the bomb is this, this fissioning event, if, if you will, that releases massive amounts of energy and radiation all at once. It's physically possible because of the highly enriched uranium or plutonium that's contained in the weapon. A nuclear power plant does not have that energy driver. It physically can't happen. The nuclear fuel in a power plant is not enriched enough to have a nuclear explosion like that. However, there's still plenty of radioactive material inside the core of a, of a reactor. And that's what got released or some of that got released during Fukushima. And in Fukushima, right, you know, just a quick uh, education on how that uh, event went. And we kind of, you know, I kind of saw it happening from afar before it happened. We knew you know, people in the nuclear power industry knew what the problems were going to be. When the um, tsunami hits or the earthquake hits and, and not, knocks out all the power to the plants, so now the, the power plant has no power, it is unable to keep the pumps running, to cool the core, and eventually the core or the spent fuel is going to melt. And when it melts, it releases massive amounts of radiation. But again, that's melting fuel. That's not exploding fuel. You know, fundamental difference there. In your industry among experts like yourself, do you think about 
people like me, the unwashed masses here who, again, <laughs> think about nuclear power. And the first thing I've, I've ne I have no idea what the difference is between nuclear weapons and nuclear energy. And, and you know, right. you obviously just described it well, but do you think that's also part of the, I guess you could say advertising that needs to happen or education is people just don't know that stuff. Or, you know, the thing I also just wrote down is whenever it seems like America and Iran are trying to figure out their latest sanctions against each other. You know, America doesn't want a nuclear Iran and Iran always comes out and says, look, we want nuclear energy. That's all we want. We want it for nuclear right. energy yep. purposes. And yet the first thing you hear is just the word nuclear. And then the rest of it all just kind of fades away as one and the same. Yep. Is it possible for a nation to be having nuclear energy, but not being nuclear weapon capable? Or is the technology similar enough that really it puts you on a road to having both. Yeah, the technology is similar. So basically it's all about enrichment. You know, a nuclear power plant runs on enriched uranium. And so what that means is you take the naturally occurring fissioning radioactive uranium, the portion of uranium, uranium-235, naturally it's about 0.7% of the uranium we get is this U-235. That's the important figure. To run a nuclear power plant, there are some up in Canada, especially that can run on natural uranium, but most of the United States plants run on enriched uranium and they enrich it to like three or 4%, give or take, uh, you know, so they enrich it, you know, four or five times what its natural quantity is. So there's a process to do it. That's where you hear about nuclear centrifuges or there's a few different ways to do it, but that's how they uh, enrich the uranium. A nuclear weapon, on the other hand, is on the order of, 80, 90, 95% or more enriched uranium. So it's a similar process, but just done more and more, you know, more of it. So to make nuclear fuel is just, you know, the first step, I guess you could say on the way to making nuclear weapons potentially, um, because it is a, a similar process. Now you ask if there's a, you know, if there's countries that have nuclear power, but are not nuclear weapons capable, I would say yes, probably, you know, but it kind of depends on well, where are you getting your fuel? You know, for example, uh, you know, I helped work on their building, uh, math, you know, the biggest nuclear power plant construction project in the world, probably that's been going on recently is in Abu Dhabi over in the United Arab Emirates. So they're building nuclear power plants, but they're importing their fuel. They do not have enrichment capability. They don't have their own uranium. They're buying their fuel from another country, but they're going to start running nuclear power plants. And as far as I know, they're not a nuclear weapon capable country. That's if that's the right term. So really it's enrichment then that yep. the UN inspectors are looking for is what's your capability to do that when it comes to when they're exactly. checking out certain so, so Iran has Iran has these big banks of centrifuges and they're enriching and they say, Oh no, we're just doing this to make a uh, power plant fuel. And then someone else says, No, no, you're doing that to make a uh, weapons grade. You know, uh -huh. so then then that's the the dilemma or the the, the potential disagreement. I want to get back to the idea of, you know, Fukushima is the worst case scenario in most, in, we just Pretty kind much, of discussed yeah. it. And yet nobody's killed. And we have this irrational fear that is going on. I mean, this is a tidal wave triggered issue. That's not a big problem in Ohio, where we have the Davis-Bessey plant there. And yeah. Why are we so afraid of this when the climate change issues and the storms and all these other things are pressing fears, but I just don't, I can't figure out why people are more scared of this giant accident, which is irrational. It seems like everybody thinks it's going to be Chernobyl, but Chernobyl is incredibly flawed, right? Correct. Yeah. Chernobyl is incredibly flawed. I think you're hitting on it. It is a, 
it is a, a we all have a faulty risk perception. I think I'm not here to uh, downplay Chernobyl, but I'm willing to bet the vast majority of people think Chernobyl caused a lot more deaths than it actually did. Just like I think people think Fukushima caused a lot more problems than it actually did. Again, those were big negative events, but their uh, their impact is, I don't think, a, a appropriately understood, I guess, by people. So the path that we were on up till 1970, the cost per watt to make a nuclear power plant was falling. And we were, it was cheaper than other energy and things were going good. Then something happened in 1970. And then I, backfitting is described in the article and that it seems like they change requirements. And then all of a sudden nuclear power starts becoming exponentially more expensive. If Correct. we're on the path we were in 1970, couldn't we just have kept going and gotten to a more efficient power source where we're not relying on fossil fuels and contributing all these issues? I think we could have. And, and, and why did the costs go up? And they kind of talked about it in the article, and I think it was mostly correct, was that um, they, uh, they started, again, backfitting and applying some more rules to these plants. And from the electric company's standpoint, you know, to build the plant, right, you have to get uh, licensed. And during that time, you know, in the, in the 70s, it's, it's kind of changed now, but during that time, you had to get two different licenses. One was a construction license and one was an operating license. So first you apply to construct a power plant. And then, you know, so you, you say, here's where I'm going to put it. We've found the suitable site. Here's the design of the plant. That all goes through the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and they approve it. And they say, okay, well, now you can start building it. Well, that's great. And so the companies spend tons of money to start building this big power plant, but they're not going to be able to get a dime out of that plant until they turn it on and operate it. Well, you need another license to operate it. And during the time it took them to construct it, maybe, uh, you know, maybe some improvements in technology were discovered, or maybe some community members were getting upset and demanded some other environmental protections or just something to try to say that they, you know, something else they wanted out of the plant. And then all of a sudden, all these things start getting added to this project that's already started. And then the, the, the regulatory structure will kind of force these companies to have to then change, you know, they approve the design once, but then they be forced to change it again and again and again and again. And that's how the cost just started going through the roof. And then these companies will be willing to pay it because they had already sunk so much money into the project and wanted to get it done, even though they had, you know, the initial plans was I'm going to build this plant and it's going to cost me this much. Well, then in the future, all of a sudden the rules changed. In the article there, it talks about the idea that once you do find a way to reduce costs and start operating at a more efficient level, then the regulators come back and add more restrictions. Is that, <laughs> would you say that's, that's a pretty fair statement? I mean, the way they describe it, I think is, is fair. I mean, I'm not exactly sure how much I, uh, saw it or see it in actual real life, at least in the, the short term or year over year. And what um, kind of what they're getting at there is the ALARA concept, which we use in radiation protection a lot, what is um, as low as reasonably achievable. So we have in the regulations, workers and members, you know, there's limits to how much radiation a worker can get and limits to how much a member of the public can get. So those are hard and fast written in, in ink, written in stone laws that you do not want to violate. But they also have this concept called ALARA, which is, well, below that, anything that you should do, anything you can to reduce radiation exposures as long as it's reasonably achievable. And so what that does is that does a good thing. It tends to drive down radiation doses, drive down exposures to people. 
Uh, so that's a good thing. But as technology gets better and as doses get lower, right, more and more becomes reasonably achievable. And then that can drive these plants to keep going lower and lower and lower. Um, so you're never, you never get to an endpoint because you can always find some other way to, to save a little bit more radiation exposure. Um, and then it becomes an issue of, well, what is reasonable and how much effort do I really need to put into this? Right. It, it seems, seems like, like a sliding scale. It's like uh, cars have to get 30 miles a gallon or 40 miles a gallon. And every year it increases by two or three miles per gallon. It'd be nearly right. impossible for companies to keep up. Right. Then all of a sudden, right. That's probably a good analogy. And then uh, you got each year, you got to get another couple miles a gallon. And then you wonder why the cars keep getting more and more expensive. Well, is your specific job then looking at the health and safety of the workers in plants or is your job to look for more ways that we could be safer at the plant? Yes, both. Uh, as a health physicist, those are, those are both things you would do. You're both monitoring, tracking, monitoring, and planning the, the operational activities at the plant and trying to figure out how to do them in a, in a more safe manner. Um, so yeah, so I, I talk about how well, you know, is this a Lara concept? Is it, uh, you know, how beneficial, beneficial is it to the industry or what? But, you know, fundamentally it's the, uh, you know, the reason I have a job and a career also um, <laughs> because, because there's a, a focus to reduce the exposure and that's where I come in. Now, I feel like nuclear should be the solution as we move to electric cars, as we, mm -hmm. even if we move to more solar and wind power and those things, it's not always windy out. The sun's not always shining. We need yep. something to supplement it. And it has been, to my understanding, natural gas generation uh, largely to supplement it and maybe coal in some other places, shouldn't yep. nuclear be the solution? Because you can turn the plant up and down, right? You can just make it more less powerful. Yeah, I'll say a few things on that. One is, yes, I, I fully believe nuclear should be a bigger part of the solution. It's not the solution. You definitely, you need a mix. Um, but I think nuclear should be a much bigger part than it is. And that's why I always kind of chuckle, you know, the, you know if you get go and get an electric car, and you'd run around and you think you're being green because you have an electric car. Well, it's like, well, maybe it's all, where did you get that electricity from? Cause going back to what I said before, you know, we write a check to the DTE or whatever your power company is. You know, if they, uh, if you've got an electric car but that uh, car was powered by coal, you know, I don't know that you did much to um, save the earth compared to someone else driving a gas car. Now Don, to what you said about the nuclear plants, that's one thing about most current design, you know, the nuclear plants we have in the country today, right now, they would be considered um, base load generation. So they, uh, a nuclear power plant is a big, large source of electricity. It does not like being the plant. It's not good for the plant to adjust the power level. You want to get these things up to 100% and just let them go uh, and let them run, you know, in a, a well-running plant, they can run for 18 months straight with hardly any uh, perturbations in the electricity generated. If you start changing power on them, it does some, you know, you got some weird uh, chemistry issues and it causes some other, I mean, you can do it and you certainly can do it in an emergency, but it's not, not smart from an operational standpoint to be constantly ad adjusting the electricity power. That's, you know, that's one of my, I always kind of chuckle if you remember one of my favorite scenes from uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation when uh, Clark fires up his house and they go and they show the guy uh, ramping up <laughs> the auxiliary nuclear, you know, he hits the little dial up there and uh, it doesn't quite work like that. Other plants, other types of uh, generation are better at changing power levels. 
a person like myself again who thinks okay nuclear just the first thought is well it doesn't seem good because the radiation and obviously the data doesn't support that but then the next thing i would probably say is well hey we're increasing our solar and wind and hydrogen power across the earth it looks like we can just bypass this whole nuclear thing because we have a better solution that's safer for people Mm -hmm. and how do you think the like a person like myself should think about that well i think I'm all for more solar and wind um, and, and other alternative sources of power because I'm a, I'm a big believer in you need uh, you know diversification of your uh, of your power source for a wide variety you know because because of all, all the economics that go into this you know the climate change aspects I think you know as many different sources of power you can have and be good at are uh, um, are, are definitely a benefit but as we we, we see you know like some of the other ones you know the big ones with with solar and wind for instance. So like you said, the sun doesn't always shine, the window always doesn't blow. We do not have a good, efficient way of storing electricity. So, you know, we need, we need to make the electricity we need right now. You know, we don't have, there's no good batteries or that. I mean, there's, there's, there's some things you can do, but at least not on a large scale. So you need to have that capability. You need to have, you know, whether it's even still fossil plants that can, that can power on and off depending on the, the needs of the particular day, week, moment even. So uh, uh, an energy mix is very important. The, the the part of the article that I thought also was very interesting was they kind of pointed out the juxtaposition of basically to avoid global warming, the world needs to massively reduce CO2 emissions, but to end poverty, the world needs massive amounts of energy. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I just have never really thought much about. And usually the same sort of person on the political spectrum says, yes, we need to end poverty. Yes, we need to reduce CO2 emissions. But they seem to be at sort of opposite ends in some ways, unless sort of nuclear is that solution. Yeah, no, I think most people that look at it, and if you go into, you know, make an honest evaluation and assessment of, of how and where and when can we get our power, uh, nuclear, nuclear comes out, in my opinion, if you do, like I said, if you haven't, an honest evaluation, you, there's, that's the way to get to, to your goals. That's the way to get affordable power to the masses to improve the livelihoods of, you know, lots of, you know, third world countries or whatever. That's, that's the way, you know, they need massive amounts of power. That's how you can do it in a, uh, you know, in a, in a climate changing world. That's going to be the best way. Now, I took the other perspective on the same issue was I looked, the article began with a graph and Europeans use half as much power per capita as Americans do. Do we (laughs) Americans just need to use a lot less power? Should we just like say, instead of climate, instead of nuclear, instead of solar, we need to just say, no, no, we're just going to use a lot less power. We need to live in smaller places. Are we going to not air condition to sweat a little bit? Or is that what we need to do? I, I guess I can't say whether or not that's what we need to do, but that would, I mean, that would certainly uh, help some of our uh, power issues, I guess, within this country. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's well known. We, we, yeah, you're exactly right. We, what's, what's known about Americans? We have big houses, we have big cars, you know, it's all energy. And we don't compromise. Right. <laughs> and we use it. So and that's exactly my point is because, and now we're making electric cars, but we're not making small official electric cars. We're going to make big ass electric cars. Right, we're, still gonna make, we're still going to make the, 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 the full size SUVs. Just make them electric. 
Yes, and they're going to right. demand tremendous power to charge these beasts, and you can feel right. good about it because it's an electric vehicle, but it's still pushing a lot of wind resistance, using a lot of power to move probably one or two people, and it's yep. just a way to rationalize what we're current do, currently doing, isn't it? Yeah, no, it, it, it's all about energy. So it's, 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 it's how are you getting the energy to do what you need to do? And you know the layout of our, our lives consumes a lot of energy, so we need it. So if we're going to get that in the form of gas for our cars or electricity for our batteries, and then how are you getting the electricity at all? It's all kind of the same. So that's the whole point. It's like, if we're going to want to drive these big vehicles, have air-conditioned houses, they're 68 year-round, shouldn't we then just realize like, okay, well, it's got to come from somewhere. It's either filthy coal or it is natural gas or why doesn't nuclear just come to the imagination as the solution? And it seems like everybody takes a bite of this problem in that some people are like, okay, well, I'm scared of radiation because I don't understand it. And it seems scary right now. Some people think that, oh my goodness, this is going to, there's the climate change thing. And it just, nobody wants to compromise or really evaluate good solutions. Well, I would just go with that. Nobody realizes that radiation is already out here in the environment. I mean, to be honest, I I had really very little idea that radiation just sort of naturally existed like it did. I mean, I was almost surprised when I read the banana I eat every morning carries radiation in it. And I just wonder if it's more of an advertising problem for the industry than anything else. Yeah, I think it largely is. And, uh, and yeah, and and you hit on that. And remember, I, as a, uh, you know, as a health, health physicist or whatever, you know, radiation is radiation. It's all kind of the same, right? But um, if you get, if you go to your, your dentist or your doctor's office and they say, we need to x-ray your teeth or your broken leg or whatever, you know, you say, okay, strap me in, you know, give me that CT scan or whatever. You go and do it and you do it without thinking. But what happens now? Well, you just got exposed to radiation. You know, that's how it works. But uh, that's considered good radiation when, you know, exposure from a nuclear power plant, right? That's bad radiation. When in many ways and fundamentally, and I look at it, I say, no, it's the, it's the same radiation. You know, it's just different, different means of you, of, of, being exposed, of you being exposed to it. And the article does a good job of sort of pointing out other calculated risks that we as a society are willing to accept. It talks about car accidents, right? We know yep. car accidents happen. We don't stop driving. We try to just figure out how to make cars safer or planes. We know that every once in a while, a horrific plane accident will happen, but we don't ban the industry. And yet nuclear power, once again, sort of gets put way over to the side as something that we're just not really collectively willing to accept at that sort of, um, you know, in that sort of way. Right, right. And one of the uh, fundamentals of uh, risk acceptance, right, is uh, you're more willing to accept any risks that either you understand, you know, you're educated on, or that you choose, right? So if you consciously chose to take that risk, you're willing, you're willing to accept that risk. And, and you have a tendency probably to underestimate the value of, or underestimate that risk. Whereas if you don't understand it or it wasn't an, an active choice that you made, you're going to have a tendency to far overestimate that risk. So when it comes to a nuclear power plant, right, you maybe didn't cho- choose to have that down the street from you and you don't understand it. So therefore it's very, very bad. Have you and- noticed... Have you noticed at all a pushback? I feel like in the last 20, 30 years, America has become more anti-intellectual or when people start to use numbers and data to explain how the world works. And it's complicated. 
it's hard to understand all of this unless you've spent the kind of time you have understanding right. and researching nuclear power. Do you feel like there's actually been even greater rise in anti-nuclear activities now as people just don't want to understand it? They just know radiation equals bad and they don't want to hear any more of this. That's my thought on that. The nuclear industry and the nuclear power plant has gone through, you know, my career, one or two would prove to be false renaissances. They thought that was going to come become you know, oh, now we're going to finally start building nuclear power plants again. And that was going well. And then we had Fukushima. Um, and that kind of derails, you know, public perception, a lot of that. So I don't know that I feel like there's been anti-nuclear so much. I think, you know, and just in my dealings with people, I think people are more and more for it. I think more and more people are realizing that like we talked about here today, you know, talking about that's the real, you know, that's the real serious path that is generating large amounts of electricity without generating large amounts of CO2. But there's still just so many other issues related to it that it's keeping it from becoming an increased large scale rollout of more nuclear power plants, you know, because then it starts flowing into the, the real world aspects of it, of where are we going to put these plants? How are we going to finance these plants? What are the market conditions that will allow them to be built? And it just becomes a, a, a problem that's not easily solved. I feel like in our discussion and just looking at the article, that part, the greatest part that's driving up costs in nuclear is this focus on reducing the daily exposure of people that are near or around the plant. But I don't think that that's what people fear. I don't think people fear this constant low-grade radiation. I think they fear this major incident. And it's that's what everybody is concerned with and not the other thing. And if there's a way to assure people that that is not going to happen. It seems like we could save some money by not worrying as much about these low background doses. Right. And, and I guess my experience is you can't, you can't make that risk zero and you can't say it's not going to happen because people will say, well, Chernobyl, you told us it was safe. And then we had Chernobyl and then we had Fukushima. And that's kind of where the discussion can end. <laughs> right. And you can say, oh, well, you know, Fukushima is a one in a one in a t one in 10,000 event. And well, we did all this, you know, we did all these improvements and now it's a one in hundred thousand event. Is that going to make anyone feel any happier? No, they're still going <laughs> to say, no, it can happen. Do people in Europe or other uh, countries, continents of the world, do you notice that they talk about nuclear power differently than we do or think about it differently? And therefore it's a different tone in the conversation. I don't know that my, my dealings internationally with, with people. I mean, I, when I talk about this, you know, it's other nuclear professionals. There are obviously other pro-nuclear people. So we're kind of speaking, I guess, the same language. But they have some of the, the same issues. Germany made an effort to said that they said they were going to get rid of all after after Fukushima said they were going to get rid of all their nuclear plants. They said we are not going to go nuclear. Well, that hasn't gone that great for them. And they've been had to, you know, they don't have enough power. So they're importing power from outside countries. And where they get, you know, where are those countries? How are they generating the power? Well, maybe it might be nuclear, but often it's going to be coal and oil. You know, so shutting down your nuclear plants and maybe that makes you feel good in one way, but it didn't do anything to help the environment at large. Other countries, you know, like, you know, China's building, China and Korea are actively building many nuclear plants. I don't know the tenor of how nuclear is considered over there. A place like France has something like 75 to 80% of their electricity is from uh, nuclear power. So it's generally well accepted there, but it, it's, it's kind of, you know, it kind of, across the political spectrum. It's just, you know, what, what, is the, what are the feelings of each individual country? I'm going to walk out on the long plank and say Chinese people are not explicitly protesting the <laughs> nuclear power there. <laughs> they probably are not. 
that's very, but that's true. And like, again, every headline that I see surrounding energy or renewable energy, it's always the latest wind turbine that we're going to put out in the middle of the Atlantic. You almost mm-hmm. never see headlines about a new nuclear power plant or new regulations going in. Again, it seems like in some ways, people have sort of, at least they want to believe that they've moved beyond nuclear to go to renewables. Are you hopeful for the industry in the future? Or do you think it will sort of stay at around 10% of the world's energy power source? Or do you think you're seeing uh, any bright lights out there? Yeah, I mean, especially within the United States, right? You know, a lot more plants are, nuclear plants are closing right now rather than opening. Um, you know, and our, our plants are old. Some of them are being, you know, extended. So that some of them are still running. But more are closing than, you know, a couple are being built, like two are being built right now, but that's it. So I'm hope I'm certainly hopeful because I think it is the, uh, you know, it's, it's the answer to the several, several difficult problems and questions. So I'm very hopeful for it. But right now, I don't see any particular bright lights to say, hey, this is why we're going to start having more nuclear. I wish we did. But right now, I don't know of it. Well, and Don just sort of, you know, made his um, his quip there about China. But but one of the things I was thinking about is obviously energy security is a major issue for any nation. Mm-hmm. And if other nations are going to go and build nuclear power plants, is there any discussion in the industry about being weary of seeding this kind of technology to other nations to be the leaders in from a national security issue? Again, if the Chinese, the Russians are doing it, shouldn't we be wanting to play on this field as well? Yeah, right. That, that's exactly it. And that, that's been a, a topic of discussion. And that, uh, you know, in the 50s and 60s, right, we were the, the leaders in terms of nuclear technology. And at this point, we're not, we're not leading as much as we were, and maybe we're not leading anymore. Because places like China and Russia and some other places are much more actively involved in the technology. It's, it's a function of, you know, what is the industry out there? If we're not building plants, if we're not developing, we're not operating them, that means there's not good jobs there. You know, the smart people aren't coming up and going through these programs to, to become nuclear professionals. Uh, and then that's how you, you lose your leadership position. Well, this was also a question I'd written down was, it seems like there's sort of a stagnation maybe in the nuclear industry in terms of allowing new technological developments, allowing new plants. I kind of wondered about people like yourself or new people coming up is, do you notice that bright scientific young minds are not choosing to go into the nuclear field because maybe there's just sort of a a glass ceiling, if you will, that doesn't allow them to maybe reach their fullest potential in terms of research. There's other scientific questions they would rather go out and research. And therefore, is there a major labor shortage coming up of people who have this expertise in order to manage these sorts of buildings and uh, stuff like that? Right. No, that the the, the industry is constantly looking at that. You know, it definitely goes through some ebbs and flows and some cycles there. I guess, you know, personally, like I came through, I uh, graduated from U of M in what, 97, 98. And, you know, I'm at a, you know, big school like University of Michigan. Well, my, uh, you know, my nuclear engineering classes, you know, they would have, even even at the undergraduate level, sometimes might have seven kids, six, 10, you know? (laughs) So, uh, you know, I I always kind of told people is I had a, um, different experience at Michigan than a lot of people in the sense that this huge, huge school, but, you know, I knew every professor in the department by name and they knew me and, uh, you know, because it was so small and then out in the field or out in the, the, the practical world, because of that, you don't, you know, I'm 45. You don't, see, I don't see a whole lot of people when I go to my meetings and conferences and things like that. There's not too many people within 
five or 10 years of my age in either direction. It's just kind of the, the way it is. But in terms of, are we going to have enough right now? Plants are closing. You know, the industry you could say is getting a little bit smaller. So you're losing people to retirement, but there's less, less stuff going on. So, so far it's, it's balanced out. Well, it just makes me wonder if, will you have enough of a brain drain or brains that are just sort of leaving over time that certain processes kind of get forgotten or are not passed on enough? Because I would assume there's got to be a certain level of institutional knowledge in your right. profession. Yeah, that, that, that's a big part. That's one thing that I learned early on working in the nuclear power plants that they do very well here you know, globally. It's certainly in, within the country and also global, globally. It's how they manage what they call uh, the operating experience. And so that's, you know, generally going to be safety related matters, but the industry shares that type of knowledge across, across the industry with each other. So when a certain, you know, they have an event, you know, not something that makes the news, but uh, you know, something that breaks or that they have some problem and that they had to deal with that gets shared amongst all the other nuclear power plants in the country, or at least the ones that it could apply to. So you're kind of, they do have an active program to share some of their, almost their, I don't want to say trade secrets, but at least their operating experience that says, hey, we had this type of a pump and it failed in this way. Here's what you need to go look at. Um, so there is a good program. That's one of the, the benefits in the industry. So uh, if one plant has a problem, the other plant should be able to proactively protect themselves from that problem. It seems like this industry has tremendous swings in that when something bad happens, things swing very badly and say, we're going to close, we're going to go away from this as Russia, as uh, Germany decided, they're going to go away from it altogether. And then I wonder when the swing is the other way. If the big power shortage in Texas leads people to say, all right, well, we need a giant power generator in and leading to Zach's question, is that going to be, are we going to have enough people to put that together? Right. They, I mean, once it gets started, right, it should perpetuate itself. You know, if, if they start putting these projects together, they certainly could, you know, get a couple of them going. And if you see that, hey, this is a future and they continue to go, you know, the people will, the people will come, you know, they're still good, high paying jobs and, you know, it'll, it, it'll, it'll get, uh, it'll get filled. Um, it's just also the, uh, the lead time, right? It takes a long time to build one of these plants, especially for us, you know, because we, you know, in the United States, because we haven't done it. So if you have that event, like you said, Don, the, uh, you know, the, the, the Texas power grid failure or whatever, and it, or, or a similar type of event, and you say that the problem is that we need a big nuclear plant. Well, you can't have a nuclear plant there next week. You know, this is years and years of, you know, you got to go through all the licensing and permitting and then all the constructions. I dare to say it'd be a, a decade easily from if you decide I want to build a plant to actually being able to actually operate it, maybe longer. I don't know. Are there different States that have different requirements or is it all federally regulated? Well, that's the big issue there. What's one of the um, interesting things about certain plants that are closing now, you know, they're all based on economics of why they might be open or closed. So a plant might be perfectly profitable in Georgia, but be a money loser in Illinois, for instance, but it's the same plant. If you can just pick it up and move it. And the issue there, it's not the requirements, the design requirements. Those are all pretty much all federally approved through the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. But it is the, the economics of the electricity market in the area, whether it's regulated or non-regulated, how the power is purchased and decided to be added to the grid. That's where a plant could be profitable in one location and not profitable in another. 
A couple of years ago, I remember reading an article where they talked about one of the issues with trying to increase nuclear power seemed to be about storing the nuclear waste that comes out at the end of it. And they talked about how a lot of states were just sort of not in my backyard, not wanting to take yep. it. And so that we've got, they kind of were saying a lot of, I don't know if the word like unsecure, but we just had a lot of nuclear waste that wasn't in a permanent disposal area. And of course, I remember hearing about the national fight over Yucca Mountain and whether or not we were going to be allowed to store it there. I think right now yep. we're not allowed to store it there. How much right. of an issue is it with storing nuclear waste that also hurts the ener- the industry from being able to grow? Right. That, 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 is a, that is a big anchor on the industry, right? Because we do not have an ultimate solution for um, nuclear waste. Um, other countries have figured out one. And typically what they do is, you know, and the, the solution there is one solution, I guess, is, is what's called a deep geologic repository, which is what Yucca Mountain is, which basically is a, a big hole really deep in the ground in the midst of a lot of rock. And you drop the waste down in that hole. That's what Yucca Mountain was designed to be. But Yucca Mountain's never been approved and permitted to go. And why? Because of radiation standards it wasn't able to meet. Uh, but that's, you know, kind of the whole thing. So what does that mean in effect? Well, that means we have all these nuclear power plants and all the power plants are, for the most part, storing all their spent fuel. The fuel that was in the reactor ran for, you know, handful of years. And then you pull it out of the reactor. That fuel then goes into what's called a spent fuel pool. And when it goes in the spent fuel pool, that fuel is still very, very hot. It's got to be in a pool for, for cooling. And that, that goes back to the Fukushima event, right? When they lost power, they lost the cooling. Eventually, some of that uh, spent fuel got damaged because the water levels dropped in those pools and the fuel just melts itself. Just even after it's out of the reactor, it can still melt itself and release a lot of radiation. And then after some length of time, it cools down enough that it won't melt itself. And those, those fuel, fuel rods are transported into what's called dry casks which are basically just big, uh, big steel and concrete tubes. And they're stacked up out in the pad. Um, you know, these massive things the size of school buses that hold all the spent fuel and they sit there. And until we find a place that we can properly dispose of them and bury them, but they're sitting there. And so they're at sites all over the country where there's operating or formerly operating nuclear power plants. If Yucca is never going to be approved, do they have another plan or are they going to, are they still trying to push to, to prove Yucca? That's, sways in the winds of, of politics. Harry Reid, you know, the senator from Nevada was very much against having Yucca Mountain in his state. So he fought it tooth and nail. And I guess you'd say he was successful, you know, because it's not operating, even though the, uh, that's where the, the Department of Energy and EPA had decided that they were going to do this. But it's, it's not there. They spent a lot of money in developing that facility and it doesn't hold power. It doesn't hold waste. Um, so if the politics change, maybe Yucca Mountain becomes back in play. There is, there is a nuclear disposal sites down in New Mexico. There's a, a site that, uh, that, that buries some pretty radioactive nuclear waste, but it doesn't do fuel. And it's specifically for uh, DOE facilities, not for commercial nuclear power plants. So uh, there are some places for it, but there's no, I, don't, I have no, I, no plan or no idea of where commercial nuclear power spent fuel will go, if not Yucca Mountain. And right now, Yucca Mountain's not an option. Nevada got all that money to build the thing and then all the jobs to build it, then they don't have to store the waste. Well done, Nevada, if you're playing the game. <laughs> well, 
it's it, it's interesting though because you think about it from a standpoint of I feel like one of the themes of our conversation today is people just don't want to think much about nuclear power in terms of its benefits, but also some of these other more complex issues of where do you store this? And once again, they don't want to use numbers or data to just sort of understand this is what it looks like. They, it just the snap reaction of it's bad, right? And then as you said, now we're just storing nuclear waste on site instead of actually having a national plan to deal with it. It just seems like nobody wants to talk about it, I guess. Right. I, I think it's just because it's bad. Uh, one way, and, and it can really kind of end conversations, whatever. One, one analogy kind of circling back to something else is just fundamentally, we are able to, you know, radiation is this scary thing, right? You can't see it. You can't smell it. You can't hear it. You know, you can't, you, you have no idea where it's around you, but a, it is everywhere, and B, it actually is very easily, easily detected. You know, with it, with equipment. You know, I mean, the Geiger counters you see on, you know, movies or in Chernobyl, or whatever. And then there's there's lots of ways you can detect radiation at much, much lower levels. And so it's a non-starter. You know, when they sit there and they say, "Oh, well, um, you know, a, a headline can be, you know, Fukushima releases radioactive water into the into the ocean, or something was radioactive." That kind of ends it. You're like, oh my gosh, that's terrible, and and that's that's the end of the conversation. Well, the fact of the matter is, just by saying something's radioactive, that's not necessarily mean it's terrible. You know, like we talked about before. You know, if you go go give me a shovel and dig, get some dirt out of your backyard, I'll tell you it's radioactive. I don't even need to count it, but I can <laughs> guarantee you it's radioactive. <laughs> you know, so just the fact of something being radioactive kills conversations when in actuality, it's it's everywhere. Well, and there should be some dialogue about it. Right. Yeah, I think we need to get rid of teaching kids about the food pyramid because they're not listening anyway and just talk about radioactivity and clear up some uh, things and make people understand. <laughs> it's a failure right. of public education once again. <laughs> well, but Don, you know, you were, you were talking and the thing I just thought about is like a couple of years ago, I bought my house and I live in an area where there's a lot of radon. Yep. And, you know, at first I was like, ah, do I really want to live here? And then everybody's like, oh, it's not a big deal. You just get one of these radon detectors and, and, you the know, yep. <laughs> and people just live around radon. No big deal. Right. And when I, when I talked about the earlier on, when I talked about, you know, we'll, we'll say 300 millirem or a millirem a day, the vast majority of that is radon for most people. Yeah. So when I, when I'm saying you get exposed naturally to radioactivity all the time, most of that is radon. There's other sources, but radon is the single biggest. I'm looking at my radon uh, mitigation unit here in my basement right now and right, I'm feeling <laughs> a little bit nervous, but at the same time, I'm more worried about climate change and things <laughs> like that that are going to destroy our economy and change rainfall patterns. And Zach's convinced it's going to give Russia the breadbasket that'll rule the world. There's so many <laughs> other factors. I just feel like this should be low on our risk our risk pyramid. We need to worry less about this and worry more about other things. Well, think about how you just said radon mitigation unit. It's like, oh yeah, well, I got some technology just to solve this and make me feel safer. <laughs> and somehow radon won. I, I feel like uh, nuclear power needs a good TikTok video or something to convince <laughs> America that it's okay. <laughs> TikTok has got to be the answer. By the way, radon <laughs> mitigation unit is just a fan that sucks air out of my basement. It's not that exciting. Right. But yeah, it no, sounds I, high tech. I'm, I'm just thinking about uh, all my peers in the nuclear industry. I'm trying to think if I can think of one that knows what TikTok is. <laughs> you <laughs> got to get on it. 
I, I think you should make, as Don just said, a food pyramid based upon radiation level. That I, I think you can make a lot of money selling that poster and, and uh, get on TikTok and you could become the, the radiation TikTok guy. <laughs> and I'm telling you, you can make a lot of money. <laughs> that or you could put the fear of God in the banana industry. That's right. <laughs> Come after Miss Chiquita. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, Don, I, I've got, I, those are all of my questions. Did you have anything else you wanted to add? Uh, no, the big question that I had, that I kind of was awkwardly trying to get at Dwayne answered really well when he talked about the idea of known versus unknown and understood versus misunderstood. And those are the big issues I think that is plaguing the whole problem. I've just got one final question then. And one of the thoughts I had is, again, we've talked a lot about how the data versus the fear. And I was just sort of wondering, how did you or how have you thought about COVID over the last year in terms of the the percentage, the death rates, the, the numbers of, of transmissions, how people get it, and also how we as a society has shaped ourselves? And do you think, you know, I guess, how have you thought about it all when you hear numbers in the science based upon, instead of just the political changes that we've made or the policy changes that we've made? Well, right. I, I, I think the, the, the parallels are, are many. COVID and radiation, like I said, both things you can't see, you can't smell. And if you get exposed to it, it could potentially have a bad effect, you know, something you want to avoid to some people. So uh, to me, the, the relationships are, are striking. But, you know, again, it, it com comes down to a risk perspective, right? Like some people are, you know, if you want to sit here and say, okay, well, uh, COVID has, you know, I'm not going to do things if you're on the side that COVID is not that big of a deal because it's got a 99 point whatever percent survival rate. There's some analogies there to radiation exposure, right? So it's, it's just, I don't have a huge opinion on it in the sense that, and I, I guess I don't want to get into what, what they, people should or should not be doing with regards to their COVID response, but it is a very similar kind of risk assessment that people are doing based on this subject that they may or may not really understand. And the fundamental misunderstanding of risk, I think is best exemplified in the Johnson and Johnson shot that there's a one in a million chance that you're going to get blood clots, but there's a 125 in a million chance that you're going to die from COVID. And so right. you're 125 times more likely to die from COVID than the shot, even if those numbers are perfectly accurate. So get the right. shot. Why aren't, but people don't understand. They, they right. can't calculate risk, which is right. really the root of this whole problem with nuclear power is they think that it's going to be Chernobyl right in their backyard, but yet that's never happened even with the two worst accidents in the non-Soviet world. Well, right. and as you just said with Johnson and Johnson, they've almost lost the advertising campaign. The first headline that came out said, only 65% effective or 75% effective, even though the real headline was nobody's going to the hospital. And now with this blood clots, it's amazing how many people think it's just this faulty vaccine now. Right. Well, even, even here in uh, Michigan, they, before the blood clot, right? Like Mayor Duggan was referring to the Johnson Johnson as like a, a lesser vaccine, right? Because it was claiming 65 or 70% efficacy, efficiency or effectiveness compared to the other ones that would be more like 90 or 95%. And it was kind of like, well, that's not necessarily the right way to look at it, but that's, that was the message. And it's amazing how that perception can really shape, I guess, the reality that the masses feel, even if it's not real. Right. 
Well, Mr. Demore, thank you so much for for joining us today and for answering our questions. I mean, this was absolutely fascinating on so many levels. <laughs> I am going to try to be a better citizen and a better advocate for nuclear energy. I <laughs> oh, really good. appreciate you joining us here. <laughs> My pleasure. Nice chatting with both of you. Thank you so much for your time, Dwayne. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. Yep. Thank you so much. We'll uh, talk to you next week, Don. All right. Bye-bye.